Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to be here today. Thank you for what you have done through the Hunts and their ministry, and just a great privilege to have them back, folks that have been launched uh, from this body and now are home. And uh, we just pray that their, as Nabe's already prayed, we ask that their transition back into the flow of this body would be so rich and so full of grace. And uh, we, we thank you that we get to be a part of the family of God together. It's been six days since we've gathered, and since then our, our heart for you has leaked, and we need to be together in the body. And we thank you for this book, First Timothy, for its role in the life of this body, and we pray that you would use this uh, final reflection on uh, the last two verses to cement in our minds what you've done and propel us forward into things you have for us in our future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your Bible and turn over to that text that Lori read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. As you're turning there, let me ask you to think of the answer to this question, one that I've asked you before, and that is this. So when I say the word church, what comes to mind? Church. For that matter, think of this with me. The image that you have in your brain right now, what season of life are you in when you think of that image? Are you a child, a teenager, maybe even now as an adult? Or So when you think of the word church, what sort of feelings come to mind? Is it a positive term to you? Is it a negative term? Does it, does it bring back um, memories that are really positive for you or things perhaps that you'd rather forget? Those are the questions that I asked you when we began this series on First Timothy back in October of last year. We had just moved into our new sanctuary, and I felt like it was a good time for us to dial into this book in First Timothy for a number of reasons. In the first place, we had already gone through the book of Colossians. Some of you were a part of that series called The Core. Uh, then we went through the book of Job, talking about um, the who, not why question in regards to suffering. And then we were, for quite a while, almost two years, in the book of Matthew, And after looking at the life of Jesus as the central reality of the church, and then secondly, uh, the life of Jesus expressed in our lives as we suffer, and then actually the actions of Jesus through the book of Matthew, I wanted to take some time and talk about what it means for us to live out the life of Jesus and how we do church together. So that was the first reason that we wanted to study 1 Timothy. The second reason was that we had just moved into this new facility, into this space, and we were still trying to figure out how to do church here in this environment. I, mean, I know enough about church to know that space kind of defines your experience. Some of you found that out kind of the hard ways. You tried to figure out where you're going to sit, right? Now, most of you have figured out where you're going to sit, and I appreciate you sitting in the same spot so I can take attendance every Sunday. I know where you sit, so if you move, I'm going to think you're... You're, you're not coming here anymore, so if you want that, go ahead and move. But most of you don't want to do that anyway. So just sit where you are, stay in your seats, but don't be angry if someone else sits there. Okay, so just, just do that. But we are trying to figure out what it means to do church in this new environment. And so I thought that going back to the book of First Timothy would be really helpful, because regardless of time, era, or space, there are some truths that just define the life of the church, and we wanted to just focus on what those things really are and help us know what some of the non-negotiables are for us as a church. The third thing is that I really sense that this idea of what the church is, the doctrine called ecclesiology, the understanding of how the church does life together, is something that we often neglect. I mean, every seven days we gather together and we worship together, and yet... Often we don't think about how we do that or what does it mean to be part of the church. 
especially in a consumeristic environment where we look at church as something that could just meet my needs or meet me where I am. It's important for us to think about bigger biblical truths about what it means for us to be the church together. And so that was some of the reasons why we wanted to join into this study in 1 Timothy, kind of join this movement together in this great book. The reality is, is that what you experience in church becomes life-shaping. In fact, some of you, on the negative side, are still recovering from a life-shaping experience with the church. I'm sort of half-jokingly, but I mean this in all seriousness. Some of you, of you are in that kind of church recovery program, trying to figure out, so how do I, how do I think about church? You got burned. Whether it was a doctrinal issue or more than likely some sort of personal issue, you, you know the, the pain connected with that. In fact, you may have found yourself at one point in time saying, I can't believe this is happening in my church. And you know, as well as I do, those are some of the most painful moments of your life, and they shape you. And the other side of the equation, if you have a really great church experience all of your life, you ought to be really thankful to God for that, because that shapes what it is that you see in terms of the church. When godly living and biblical truth and real life change combine in a body of believers, there, there's nothing like that. And it really impacts you. It, it, it shapes how you see the world. So last Sunday night, we did one of the most glorious things that we ever get to do around here. I told you about it last week, but I just want to show you a picture of it. So we were able to restore a person to fellowship in this body. A man who'd been disciplined outside of the church, voted out. We identified him in his sin and said, look, you can't be a member in good standing and continue here. If you continue this pathway, well, eventually he repented made his way through the restoration process and last Sunday night we were able to restore him to full fellowship. And when you're in that moment and you're praying over somebody who's come back to Christ and he's pulled himself back from the brink, God helping him, and people come around him, you just walk away from a Sunday night like that and you just think, man, this is church. Seriously. This is the way that it should be. It's real. It's life-changing. It's transforming. It's whole. So that, that affects how you see what church ministry is. That is church. During my senior year of college, I served as an intern in a church that combined a, a beautiful, um, the beautiful, beautiful dynamics of, of strong expositional preaching, heartfelt praying, and body life together, along with biblical counseling. The pastor of that church, John Street, served as a, a mentor to me, and now he teaches at uh, Master's College and Seminary in California, and my life was forever impacted by what I experienced at Clear Creek Chapel. I mean, this, this church of about 300 people, folks had come from all walks of life, many of them had horribly messed up lives, and yet they found hope and oneness and life change in the context of the gospel. And it, it truly shaped my understanding of the church, it shaped my understanding of what church could or should be. And, and frankly, that is what a good church experience does. It, it, it marks you, and it marks you forever. And I'm very mindful of that. In fact, I, I feel the mantle of that, that as our staff and elders lead you, we're, we're making an impact on your understanding, not just of what this church is about. Now, friends, we're making an impact in regards to what you understand the church as a whole is all about. And we take that very seriously. Well, this is the uh, 24th and final message in this book of 1 Timothy, and my aim today is to walk us through the last two verses and then draw some conclusions about some big-picture themes that we've been able to see 
in 1 Timothy. Now, next week, we're going to jump into a new series on the Psalms. We're going to take a number of the tough questions in Psalms, like, how long, O Lord, and why have you forsaken me? And we're going to dial into how do you walk through seasons of suffering when you really need to ask God hard questions. And the reason I want to walk you through that is that you will experience suffering in your lifetime. And I want to help you understand how to be able to navigate those waters. As a part of that summer series, we'll also be having a a prayer room, a place that you can go and pray in between services, after the service, an opportunity to pray for some of you who are in the dark, dark aspects of life right now. We want just to come alongside you, love you, and pray you through that season. My thesis for this entire series in 1 Timothy was simply that the church is vital to God's mission, vital to the gospel message, and vital to our spiritual maturity. In other words, the church is essential in that it is the primary vehicle by which God has determined to accomplish His purpose in the world. The church is the primary guardian of the gospel, and it is the means, the environment, the dynamic in which you grow spiritually. And I've tried to help us understand that the church is really, really important, maybe even more important than what we even fully understand And through these six chapters, we've observed some great and timeless truths about the church. So now it's time for Paul to give this final charge to Timothy, this this last thing that he's going to say as he wraps up this book. He'll write another letter to Timothy. It's called 2 Timothy. But in this juncture, it's time for him to draw all of this to a close. And today I wanted to show you four things from this text in regards to what Paul says here in this final word. In the first place, notice this. Notice that for Paul and Timothy, this is really personal. Look at verse 20 and notice that it begins with two words. O Timothy. Now you might just blow through that as we were reading the scriptures and you may not have seen or even felt the significance of that. In fact, interestingly enough, the NIV and the NRSV doesn't even put the word O in there. It just says Timothy. And I think, frankly, that's a a mistake uh, an understanding of the text, and even it's even in the Greek, puts this word O there. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's ramping up the emotions of this final appeal. He's saying, O Timothy, in the, in the same way that we sang just a minute ago, O how he loves us. I mean, it's one thing to say, he loves us, or how he loves us. It's an entirely different thing to say, O how he loves us. If you go home today and your spouse makes you a great meal and you say, oh, this is a great meal, that's better than saying this is a great meal. If you add O to it, it just makes it all the more meaningful. If you say, oh, this is a great meal, so now you just, you'll know how to bless your family member. Oh, great meal. So this is just a great and helpful thing that has nothing to do with the text in particular, but is helpful in your life, I'm sure. And Paul does this all over the New Testament. For instance, and we've seen this already in 1 Timothy 6. When he's talking to Timothy about his personal godliness, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. To the Galatians, when he's concerned about their doctrine and that they had departed from the gospel, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? When talking about the spiritual pride of those who would judge people for the very sins that they're committing, Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges. And then for those who wrestle with the sovereignty of God as it relates to their decisions, feeling as though they're puppets, 
in regards to God's control over their life, Paul says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In every case, whether it's doctrine or whether it's in regards to sovereign purposes or spiritual pride, Paul adds the little word O in order to increase the emotion so that it has an element of more weight to it. So why would Paul do this as he's wrapping up this letter? Well, I think that he does this because he's trying to press this into Timothy's heart. He, he wants these words to land deep in his soul. He, this is his final charge, and he wants Timothy to feel it deeply. So he begins by saying, Oh, Timothy. He wants Timothy to feel the weight of this. Because while this letter is about the church, essentially it relates to Timothy on a personal level who would have to carry the mantle of leading this church. Friends, this is part of the beauty and the pain of ministry. Part of the beauty and pain of church ministry is this, that it's personal. And frankly, it should be. The reality is, is that God's ministry is accomplished in the church by people, and these people are personally affected. They're personally affected. They're, they're in. Take your Bible and look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. Turn there with me and notice this. Notice how Paul addresses Timothy in a very personal way. Notice the emotions, his tears, and the way in which Paul is exhorting Timothy to not be fearful. 2 Timothy 1.3, all the way to verse 8, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears... I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What is Paul saying here? Well, he's speaking to Timothy personally and it's very clear that Timothy is personally engaged. There's tears. Apparently, there's some level of fear. Paul has to remind him to fan and to flame this gift and What we see here, friends, is that ministry at any level involves life-on-life contact. It requires you to get in to the mess of people's lives. Ministry, church ministry at any level, requires one, listen, to lay down his or her life. To risk the possibility of pain, of disappointment, of sorrow, and even persecution. Because church ministry involves the care of souls of people and their eternal destinies are on the line, therefore it is going to involve difficulty, hardship, pain. The comfort of this is that Jesus did the exact same thing. I mean, think of how He saves us. He comes into the world. He becomes a man. the, The Bible calls this the incarnation. Jesus becomes one of us. And in the same way, church ministry is essentially coming alongside people and becoming one of them, even though it requires great personal sacrifice. In so doing, there's a cost. You get involved at any level. 
there will be pain, there will be disappointment, there will be hardship. And don't get me wrong, there will also be incredible, great joy. But there will be deep valleys. There will be lots of tears. There will be many painful moments. So if you sign up for a ministry, you get involved in people's lives, you start praying for somebody else, you find yourself involved in the church, and then suddenly you discover, oh my word, this is painful and this is personal. Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. You're right where you should be. If you start serving the Lord and suddenly realize, wow, this is, this is a mess. This is hard. This is really difficult. I would just say, yep, welcome to church. If you find yourself overwhelmed with the needs of people, Grieving over the consequences of their sin and weary so deep in your soul you have found what church ministry really is. It's remarkable to me. I I don't often feel physically exhausted, but I often feel emotionally just completely exhausted. I find that the deeper I get in people's lives, the more I realize the, 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 the tragedy of what sin does. I've seen sin at so many levels. And there are sometimes I find myself coming home at night just so weary because of the consequence of sin that I get to see at a front seat level and all of the repercussions of that, that it creates a deep, deep, deep weariness of soul. And if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ and Him sitting on the throne and the reality of the power of the Word, knowing that in the end Jesus really wins, there are some days that your soul is so weary. And I would say to you, and this is the essence of the beauty of church ministry. It is, as Paul says, that death is at work in us, but life in you. So, So... The calling to serve in a church ministry at any level is essentially a call to die. It's a call to embrace death. I mean, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. In fact, this this passage needs to be underlined in your Bible or marked or in some way because you, you will likely have to come back to it at least one point in your lifetime if you ever get involved in the deep end of people's lives. Here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I love this. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the great paradox of Christian ministry. It is that as you die, people live. And it is the beautiful reality by which you are able to experience closeness and intimacy with Jesus because you know as I'm dying, you are embracing the very means by which Jesus rescued you. So Paul personally sent Timothy to Ephesus. He chose to send him there because he knew Timothy could do this work. And then he closes this letter by getting very personal with this young pastor, because at the end of the day, ministry is personal. So I just want to encourage you. 
the more you get involved, the harder it becomes, and yet the more glorious it actually is. Because in the end, life is not about just being safe. It is about risking for the glory of God so that the life of Jesus may be manifested through you. So first, it's personal. Secondly, he says to Timothy here that he is to guard the deposit. Secondly, he's commanded to guard the deposit. Look at what he says in the letter, or the, just after, O Timothy. O Timothy, verse 20, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is another charge, a charge that we have heard from Paul before, a number of other times, other charges throughout this letter. Here is a very specific one in regards to what Timothy is to do in terms of the essence of his calling he is to guard the deposit. He'll, Paul will continue this theme in the next letter that he writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, when he says this in 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So this idea of guarding the deposit is an important dynamic for all of us involved in ministry at any level. There's, there's three English words that we need to note here in the text. The word guard, the word deposit, and the word entrusted. The word guard is a word that means to hold someone or something in close custody. It's used of prisoners. You guard them. It's used of possessions. You're supposed to guard or hold the possession or something prized closely. But the word also can mean keep, like in obey or in follow. For instance, when Jesus confronted the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, And the rich young ruler said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. Then the man replies by saying, all these I have kept since my youth. That word keep is the same concept, same word. I've kept them close. I've guarded them. I've, I've held on to them. And here the word guard means personal attentiveness, personal passion, or constant vigilance. So Timothy is to have this this vigilance continually, and he's to have it regarding the next word, which is the word deposit. Deposit. What happens here now is that Paul uses a metaphor of a person who's been entrusted with keeping something safe that doesn't belong to them. Keeping a possession safe while the owner is away. That's what the sense is. And so this deposit, then, is something that Timothy has been given. He's to guard something, and it doesn't belong to him. It, it, it's, a, it's a precious thing. This deposit, then, is essentially the church in all of what she is. It's the church in regards to the truth of God's Word and how the church expresses that in the totality of how she lives that out. And Timothy, then, is called to guard the truth that leads to life, and he's to guard the truth that leads to life in the context of people and circumstances that God has given him. So he's he's called here to take this thing that God has given him, and he's to guard it, he's to protect it, he's to preserve it, realizing that God was the one who has given it to him. So he's to guard the deposit, third word, entrusted to you. In the English, it appears that there are three separate words, but there's actually only two in the original Greek. The word entrusted is implied in the word deposit. So whatever Timothy has been given in this deposit, he has been entrusted with it. And what we find here then is that these words, deposit and entrusted, carry two very important nuances for ministry purposes. And it's this. 
In the first case, it is being reminded that when it comes to the church, we are talking about something special, something sacred. This isn't just a place that you come to. It's not just the next thing that you consume in your week. This this is God's church. There's something sacred, something special that, that every Sunday, heaven and hell really are on the line. There are people who will make decisions in this very room whose eternal destinies will hang on what they do with what they hear. So this is, this is a, a serious, sacred trust. The, the second thing is since it's a deposit and it's been entrusted to us, it's just a really good reminder that it is, it, this doesn't belong to us. In other words, it, it helps us to avoid two extremes in ministry, two things that can really sink a church where the church becomes too casual, not taking its calling seriously, like, well, you know, whatever, or they begin to think it's about them. So we have to remind our soul often, look, this is not a game. We're not just talking about concepts or ideas. There is eternal destiny that is on the line. And secondly, this church is not about me. This, this church isn't about you. It's not about your needs. It's not about what you want. It's not about me and what I want. At the end of the day, this is a sacred trust. God has given us this church and these people at this particular moment during this particular season in history. And it is not about us. It is about Him. And it is for His glory and His glory alone. There's a sacredness to that reality that we just need to feel. This is, just a ga- this is not just a gathering of people. This is God's church. So we have this urgent appeal to guard the truth that leads to life, and we've seen this in every chapter of 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, we saw Paul talk about the importance of teaching true doctrine and refuting false teaching. He said in chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so what Paul is saying here is that teaching true doctrine and refuting false teaching is very, very important for the life and health of the church. You know, through every season of church that College Park has gone through, it is and has been a basic and fundamental commitment to this book that has been the preservative agent in this ministry. People come and go, leaders come and go, you come and go, but the reality is what makes this church the church of the living God is its commitment to the authoritative word of God. This book defines the church and preserves the church. Chapter 2 was about promoting true worship, helping people know. So once we're into the church, how do we interact within the context of the church? What should the priorities of the church be? Chapter 3 was about the leadership of the church, understanding that this is vital to the church's mission. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3.15, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this book was written so we would know how to behave, how to choose the right leaders, what qualifications they should have, how they should conduct themselves, how to recognize gifted people. 
Chapters 4 and 5 talked about living out the truth of God's Word through a global mission in practical and specific ways. How do we, how do we live this out? And what do we do in terms of caring for people near and far, like widows and people in need? He says, for this end we toil and strive, this is 1 Timothy 4.10, because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And then in chapter 6 we saw this great focus of personal godliness. He, he grabs Timothy by the collar and says, but you, O oh man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Emphasizing here the importance of Timothy's personal godliness. So what happens here and what we've seen is that Timothy has been given a sacred duty. He's called to lead the church. The church of the living God. And he has to take this divinely given deposit and he is to guard it. He is to preserve it. He's to protect it. And he's to pass it on without dilution or distortion. And at every level and in every situation and in every season of ministry, Timothy must guard the truth that leads to life. Because the church, the church is God's. And we've been entrusted with it. So he's to guard the good deposit. He's to understand that this is personal. Here's the third thing. He's to avoid what is worthless. It's really fascinating to me that right after telling him he's supposed to guard some things, then he tells him that he's to intentionally avoid other things. Look at what he says. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So what's amazing here is is that Paul knows what anyone involved in ministry with people knows, is that there are some things you must intentionally do, and then there's other things you just have to intentionally just avoid. You may have heard someone say something like this, I'm not even going to validate that comment by responding. Because the church is filled with people, and because every person has a mouth and a brain and a wicked heart, there are all sorts of things that people say. And if you begin to deal with everything that they say, you will have nothing else to do. The reality is, is there are some things that just must be ignored. Second Timothy 2, Paul says this, "...have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because you know they only breed quarrels." So one of the most important things, and yet also one of the most challenging things about being involved in church and dealing with people at any level is the decision as to what you are going to address and what you're just going to ignore. Because sometimes if you go after something, it just increases the controversy and then people are drawn to it because it is controversial. The word avoid here means to turn away from or not be involved in. Paul says the same thing to Titus in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says that he is to avoid foolish debates. So there are some things, according to the Bible, that are just not even helpful or even worth or, frankly, even appropriate to talk about. And Timothy just needs to avoid the kind of things that are a worthless distraction. They are irreverent babble. By irreverent, it means that they're just common. Anybody can do it. Babble, it's it's foolish talk. It, It lacks significant content. It's foolish talk, it's worthless talk, it's pointless talk. Anyone can be guilty of this. and It is the things that people say that are as worthless as they are common. 
You know someone like this? It's just that their mouth never stops. You have a friend who you just want to say to them, shh. Or maybe when you were in junior high, you said something like this, you talk too much. You never, you fill in the blank. You just want to tell them, hey, just... Just be quiet. They, they, they're always talking about everything and everyone. And, and for that matter, it's not only exhausting, but it's spiritually draining. These are the kind of folks who have an opinion on everything. They usually are riding some sort of hobby horse. They're constantly in the middle of conflict and controversy. And what Timothy is told here is, look, don't be drawn down the path. Don't chase everything that is said. Especially don't chase down everything that's said about you. The reality is you get involved in people's lives, they will attempt to kill the messenger or discredit the messenger. A, a wise old woman once at my last church said this to me, Mark, take care of your character and let God take care of your reputation. I love what Charles Spurgeon says in his, in his book, Lectures to Students, this, this pastor of, of this um, tabernacle church in London, England for so many years said that every pastor needs to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. What he means by that is a key to successful pastoring is to have this blind eye and this deaf ear and knowing whether or not to give someone your good ear or your deaf ear or your blind eye or your good eye. He says, listen, but know with which ear you should listen. So he's to avoid worthless or irreverent babble. He's also to avoid contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Remember, back to chapter 1, we learned that there were false teachers in the midst, and they were purporting that there were kind of two levels of Christians. They were like the true Christians who had this higher knowledge, and there were these lower Christians who needed, in their mind, to kind of grow up. And this was the early um, foundations of what would later be Gnosticism in all of its aberrant form that actually wreaked havoc in the early church. The book of Colossians addresses this fully bloomed Gnosticism when Paul says this in in, uh, Colossians 2, verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what happened here is that over time, this this focus on this higher knowledge began to make higher knowledge the real expression of what true Christians really believed, and a focus on Jesus became less and less important. And this happens all the time, where the forms of ministry or the means of ministry begin to eclipse the person of ministry, namely Jesus. Which is why our mission statement is incredibly important. It's not just a mantra for us. It is really the central defining reality of who we are. That we want to ignite a passion in you to follow a person. His name is Jesus. We want you to experience the the reality of Jesus. Not just the concepts about Him. Not just for you to love the doctrine about Him. But for you actually to know Him at a personal level. And it was this departure from Christ in the midst of their self-made religion that caused people to literally swerve from their faith. The the word means an, an arrow that has missed its mark. They were people who were spiritual, 
but they were so passionate about all of the wrong things that they ended up missing the main thing, which was Jesus. And so in this final chapter, Paul reminds them that there are some things that we just have to avoid, and not every solution is helpful, not every problem is really worth dealing with, and we have to keep the main one, the main thing, that being Jesus. And then finally he closes and he says this, Grace be with you. And there's, this charge is to rely on God's grace. This is a classic way for Paul to begin his letters. He says it in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and First and Second Thessalonians, as he does in 1 Timothy, of either grace to you or grace, mercy, and peace, as he began 1 Timothy. And as well, this is how he ends a number of books familiar way for him to end the new testament for instance first corinthians 16 he says the grace of jesus christ be with you or galatians 6 18 the grace of our lord jesus christ be with your spirit brothers or ephesians 6 24 it says grace be with all who love our lord jesus christ with love incorruptible so paul often ends his letters this way and do you know why well in, in paul's day when you ended a letter rather than saying sincerely or respectfully, or yours truly, or something like that. Instead, you would end by saying, be strong. That was the standard Roman greeting. Be strong. And what Paul does here is he Christianizes it, and he really identifies what the source of strength for the Christian really is, that being God's grace. So when he says, grace to you, or grace be with your spirit, he's identifying and, and, and highlighting the essence of what the strength and the The hope for the church really is that being God's grace. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we do is only by God's grace. It is His power that is our hope. So it would make sense that Paul would end by saying, Grace be with you. But there's more here. It's not just that he says, Be with you, singular. No, that word you is plural. It could be rendered as you all. So he has the entire church in mind. He wants all of them to be strengthened by God's grace. And what we have here in this final word is a great reminder about something that's really, really important. And that is this, that the church is pointless and powerless without God's grace. After studying this book for many months, we've seen time and time again the beauty of what God has done for us. We've seen the potential of where we need His grace even yet in our lives. Grace be to you. Grace to you. If you think about it, that is the essence of what the message of salvation is in the first place. I mean, after all, what happened in your conversion, it was that Christ came into the world and He offered grace to you. It is that you were able to have your sins forgiven because God was gracious to you. So grace to you is the central message of the New Testament of God's rescuing sinners. But even more, it is the means by which the church has success or spiritual growth or any life change in any moment, and for that matter, even future. It's all conditioned on God's grace. So on June 10th, just two weeks from now, we're going to celebrate the completion of this building project that we've called the Mission Expansion Project. It's been an amazing journey together. And when we do that, we're not just going to celebrate God's faithfulness to us over the last three years. We're going to celebrate His faithfulness for the past 27 years. Because 
Every single year that this church has been around, God's grace has been all over it. From its planting, to its growth, to the challenging moments, to its beautiful seasons, to its hardship seasons, to the moment when you came in, all of it is a product of God's grace. It is grace to you. So Paul calls us to guard this truth that leads to life by relying on God's grace to all of us. Some of you are here today and your bucket is empty. You're like, I'm, I'm here, I just I got nothing. And I would tell you, even when you feel like you've got nothing, you've got something. And what you have is God's grace. And isn't it true that when God drains our bucket, that's when the time we realize how wonderful His grace is, that some of the most dangerous times are not when we're desperate. Our most dangerous times are, are when we think we're nailing it. Why? Because we think we need God's grace less. So Paul says, grace be with you, Timothy. So let me close by just giving you four big picture takeaways from Timothy. When I thought about this book, where we've been, I went back over some messages and just thought, what are some of the big picture things, some themes that emerge from this book, things for us to be reminded about? What are they? Here's the first one, and it's this. This book has reminded us over and over that the gospel is the basis for everything. We ran into 1 Timothy 1.15 about four or five weeks in, and I think that of all the verses that I've quoted in this book, I've quoted this one the most. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I said this over and over, but I'm going to keep saying it. What that verse means is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. You're a sinner and you're the biggest sinner you know. I am the biggest sinner that I know because I know what I've done. I can only imagine what you've done. I am the biggest sinner. So when I think of the gospel, this unbelievable reality is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the foremost sinner that I know. It is a beautiful reality that we have been affected by the gospel. That the gospel meaning that I've received Christ as my Savior, that I know that I'm a sinner, I've turned from my sins, I've acknowledged Christ's death on the cross and asked God to count that death as mine. The effect of that is that everything about me radically changes. That I I now have a new identity, a new relationship with God, a new freedom in my soul. It means that at the core of who I am, I am a gospel man. And that we are a gospel community. A group of people who come from all sorts of walks of life. And the thing that defines us more than anything else is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and we are all big time ones. The book has reminded us about the gospel as being the ground that is underneath our church. Here's the second thing. We know this, but it has been a good reminder, friends, that doctrine matters. Listen, truth leads to life, error leads to death. And in a day and age when doctrine is often seen as secondary to other things like relevance and applicability, this book reminds us that ideas, especially theological ideas, have consequences. Listen, Your neighbor, the person that you love who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
it is not just that not believing Him is in error and wrong. It means that if they don't change their mind about Jesus, they will be in hell. Doctrine and truth has eternal consequences. What we believe and what we encourage others to believe has ramifications far beyond ourselves. And Timothy is reminded here, and so are we, that doctrine is serious and important. Third, this book reminds us that people make the difference. Positively and negatively, people make the church what she is. The facilities, the programs, they're just the forms. At the end of the day, it's the people that are the church. The reality is you can make a really big difference in someone's life. You can involve in someone's life in the deep end of the pond. You can make a huge difference spiritually. You can also make an enormous mess. You can, you can split a church. You can cause division. You can cause issues. People make all the difference, and they also make all of the problems. People make an enormous difference. Just, just think of the way that you've grown spiritually over the years. I, I would imagine that it's not because of a Bible study in particular or a particular sermon but rather, it is because of the people who impacted your life. Oh, sure, it was what they said. Sure, it was the Bible studies that they led. But at the end of the day, it's message combined with life that creates the spark of spiritual transformation. So the, the church is at its best when people are godly, and the church is at its worst when its people are not. The right people in the right positions, making the right decisions, makes all the difference in the world. People make the difference in regards to the church. And then here's the last one. And I don't remember where I said this or when, but when it came out, I was like, yep, that's true. And that is this, that the church is a beautiful mess. <laughs> I mean this with all of the affection that I can muster in my soul. I, I mean that the church is comprised of messed up people and it is beautiful. I love the church. I love everything about the church. I love this church. I love the people in the church. I love you as the people in this church. But what you need to realize is that we are all seriously messed up. I mean, you know that, don't you? You know you're, me- you, you know you're messed up, right? You got that? I mean, just, just ask your friend, your spouse. Am I messed up? Yes. Okay, so you're messed up. But the beautiful thing is that the church is a group of people who, although they know that they're messed up, they know a Savior who transforms and changes, changes them. So that even after Christ, we are still works in progress. And I often marvel at how in the world it, it all holds together. Were it not for the Word of God and were it not for the Spirit of God, there is no way that any church, let alone this church, would be able to be held together. There's something incredibly beautiful about the church of Jesus Christ, even though she is not absolutely perfect. She can be beautiful and not be entirely perfect. I've used this before in terms of an analogy, but I, I have had always the best seats. I've had many best seats at wedding, but I, when I officiate the wedding, I get the very best seat in the house because I get to see the bride coming down the aisle. And I've seen lots of brides. They all look beautiful. And because I've been involved in counseling and being involved in family dynamics, I know what's really going on, right? She's walking down that aisle. She's beautiful, but, but she's a mess, right? And so is he. And there's a lot of people in the room. They all got problems. They got baggage. And a lot of their baggage is actually in that room in that moment when they're coming down the aisle, right? 
And as they're coming down the aisle, I've seen the look of the dad's eyes when he's looking at this groom. He's got her on his arm, and he's all smiles, and she's all smiles. And I know he's thinking, buddy, you have no idea what you're doing, right? You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. And as he's walking down the aisle, the fact of the matter is, although she has imperfections galore, and many people in the room know her, she is still an absolutely beautiful bride. And I would tell you that is exactly what the church of Jesus Christ is. She is a beautiful bride coming down the aisle, not perfect, imperfect, and everyone in the room knows it. But the fact of the matter is it is still a very beautiful, beautiful bride. And this book reminds us that the church is exquisitely beautiful, even though she is fundamentally messed up. She is a beautiful mess. God has, for reasons that he only knows, chosen to accomplish his purposes on the earth through the organization called the church. And it is this gathering of grace-impacted, spirit-filled, word-saturated, Jesus-centered people that is the means by which this truth that leads to life is both guarded and proclaimed. So you know what our world needs? You know what the city of Indianapolis needs? You know what our state needs? You know what your neighbor needs? The world needs godly, healthy, vibrant churches because it is the church and only the church who possesses and guards and proclaims the truth that leads to life. The world needs godly, vibrant, healthy churches or the truth will vanish. He needs College Park to be godly and vibrant and healthy Because this truth isn't our truth. This truth is God's truth, and it is the truth that leads to life. So God, help us to be this godly, healthy, vibrant church so needed in order to proclaim the beautiful truth of your word. We acknowledge that we are a messed up people a people whose lives are still very much in process, who desperately need further transformation, and we want to grow in our godliness so that this truth that needs to be guarded can be proclaimed in new and powerful ways. So help us, Lord. Thank you for your years of faithfulness here. And we commit ourselves afresh and anew towards being the kind of people who aren't perfect, but the kind of people who know someone who is, that being you, Jesus. And so we thank you that this beautiful bride called College Park Church is the place that you've put us to do life and ministry and truth together. And we ask for your help to be everything you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, part of being a church is that when you're in a hurting position or you need someone to pray for you, you got some folks to come around you. That's why the folks are here this morning. So if there's something that I talked about or something else going on in your world that you just would like some folks to pray for you, they're here today to do that, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.